Hi, my name is James Kutzinger, and you're listening to Catholic versus Orthodox. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, if you would, please. Who you are, what you believe, and how you came to believe what you believe. Who am I? I was until last year when I retired for health reasons, a college university professor of religion philosophy at the University of South Carolina, where I taught for 38 years. Educational background, uh, Cornell College and Harvard. I grew up in, was raised in, a very vacuously liberal Protestant church in the Midwest, where basically the doctrine was Jesus was nice and you should be nice too. Niceness consisted largely in activism, social justice work, very little understanding of doctrine or transformation or what it actually meant to be a Christian, frankly. And um, it was in college that I first discovered something more substantive, interesting, that Christianity probably did make some sense. In my high school years, I've been sending off for books about yoga and Zen and Sufism, which is Islamic mysticism, because I was totally bored with the Protestant church, knew there had to be more. But again, it was college that I thought, well, hmm, there may actually be hidden treasures in the depths of the Christian tradition that would be analogous to, parallel to, some of the things that I'd read about in Buddhism, Hinduism, Sufism, etc. So that became interesting to me. And then a large part of my work in college consisted in, uh, well, extracurricular reading, I guess you, you, you could say, in the Fathers, uh, the patristic material, especially Augustine, but then also in many of the Eastern Church Fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory Theologian, the Cappadocians, Maximus the Confessor. And by the time I hit graduate school, I was really convinced for scholarly reasons, I guess you could say at that point, that the East had um, better arguments for their position than did the Catholic, and by extension, a fortiori, the, the Protestant West. I always ask my guests about early childhood, the first encounter with God and religion. Probably when I was nine, we lived in a, on a farm, rural area, northern Illinois. So I can remember quite vividly sitting next to a bed of tiger lilies, orange. And uh, the only way I could put it, I guess, at the time, was that the entire sort of uh, universe became tiger lily. I don't know what you would call that exactly, some kind of absorptive mystical experience, contemplative experience. I had not prepared myself for it. It just sort of happened. And then I remember my mother said afterward that something happened. She didn't know what had happened. But somehow I went from being her son to being her grandfather when I was nine. So that was, I guess, maybe a, an important event. I don't know if you know this about me, but I came to God through solipsism hard, solipsism where I actually was convinced that I am the only being and that my body is an illusion and the other is an illusion. There's a certain truth to that, you know, depending on who you think you are. There is a deep self, we'll call it a capital S. If we're speaking in Sanskrit, we'd call it the Atma, 
which is in fact the only real thing. But your ego is not, of course, the only real thing. But David Ross is not the only thing that exists. Yeah, I still believe in solipsism, but I'm no longer the god of solipsism. I've ceded my place to the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the only person that can say, I am. Yeah, the answer to the question that Moses poses on Sinai, whom should I say has sent me, I am that I am. Outside of that context, solipsism does mean, of course, something quite different to most people. But yes, of course, yes. God is the only person of whom we can predicate the subject and not have a tautology. <laughs> Do you mind if I just ask you some philosophical questions now? Go ahead. I'll try to help you. I'm often, when I argue with atheists in the comment section of YouTube videos, uh, it's not very highbrow stuff, but a lot of the accusations I get against me are that I use circular reasoning and the only comeback I can think of is that, yeah, well, all good reasoning is circular. Do you agree? And if not, why not? Well, I don't know that I can, I don't make sure I understand what you're saying exactly. I think that you have to start in truth and then come back to truth. I think of truth as one, as united in God, that everything is one in God. Everything comes from God and everything goes back to God. Well, there are simple truths which serve as premises, perhaps in syllogisms or arguments of various kinds, leading to conclusions which amplify, deepen that premise into something far more substantial and um, compelling. So I don't think that's exactly circular. Yeah, there could be a subjective progress or a learning, mm. but the way I see it is there's that pure white light and then there's the prism and the, the rainbow that comes out the other side and any component part, any frequency with the nice colors, they're all real and they're all meaningful as unique and separate colors, but there's absolutely no way to deny that they come from white light and they're going back to white light. In terms of a religious perspective on the rainbow that we have in creation, everything comes from the white light, everything's going back to the white don't light. don't need to say anymore. I think I do understand. Actually, it's in Boethius's Consolation to Philosophy, where I think at one point Lady Philosophy says something like, she says something, Boethius says, well, that's circular, and she says, well, of course. So you ought to read that. I forget whether it's the fourth or fifth book of the Consolation of Philosophy. Ah, okay. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about your prayer life? What is it like and how do you advance? And do you take two steps forward and one step back sometimes? Or is it always just half a step, half a step, half a step forward? Oh, Lord of mercy. There's a lot of back and forth. There's a complexity to the psyche that requires diligence, self-attention and we've got a lot of stuff in us that has to be deprogrammed we have to be decoded from a lot of uh, <laughs> habits and we're in different states different days our minds are able to focus to different degrees different days in my case in part depending on how physiologically physically i'm doing that day how many drugs i've got in me and through a chemo, radiation treatment, etc. We are psychosomatic beings, that the whole thing is affected top down and bottom up. There's a somatopsychic and a psychosomatic relationship. You see what I mean here. But yeah, it's, it's, it's complex. But I mean to simplify a much larger discussion, the prayer life consists in the canonical prayers of the church, the Orthodox Church 
I have a prayer rule, as it's called in orthodoxy, as do most orthodox laity. I mean, I'm not unique in that respect. That, by the way, I would say is one of the differences, as I see it at least, between contemporary orthodox Christianity and uh, Novus Ordo post-Vatican II Roman Catholicism, that there's much more of an emphasis, even at the level of laity, even in the parish church, on everyone having um, a disciplined, self-disciplined prayer life. So again, back to me, in my case, it consists of the canonical prayers of the church, then followed by use of the Jesus prayer. I'm sure you're familiar with that, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Coupled, so far as I can, with my body, with prostrations. So bringing the body itself into play with what's going on in the mind, what's being said with the mouth. And that in turn, then followed by silent, sometimes called noetic or mental prayer, coordinating the Jesus prayer with the breath. And then finally, deepening that even further to a silent uh, openness to God perhaps bringing the sense of God's presence into different parts of the body, focusing perhaps on the forehead, the heart, the relationship between the head and the heart, and coordinating that with the breath. So, I mean, these, this is a sketch. I wouldn't want in this context to say too much more. I'm not um, a staretz, I'm not a spiritual master or, or teacher, and I wouldn't want this to be construed as me telling people what they should be doing, you see. But that's, that's a brief uh, kind of outline of what I try to do myself. You mentioned the head-heart connection. That's always something I've been trying to nurture, like get connected, because there's a bit of a disconnect. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God, meaning that we have the use of reason and free will. I don't know if the Orthodox agree with that, but that's the Catholic definition of having been made in the image and likeness of God is that we are rational and we have free will. So the Orthodox, I think, would say, sure, sure. And let's add then also the body. Because the image of God, the ikon in the Greek, the image of God is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose likeness we're made. And the understanding in the Orthodox world would be that um, Christ being God the incarnation is actually an eternal reality. It did take place, yes, 2,000 years ago on one level, but then as Revelation 13, 8, I believe, says the Lamb of God was slain from before the foundation of the world. So in the divine perspective, there's always been a coming of God into the human condition so that we can actually say Christ was incarnate in some way pre-creation of man, who being made in his image, was made in his image rationally, volitionally, and corporeally. Yeah, I intuited that uh, as a Catholic, that Christ is first in everything, and so he is the model. He's not only our model in terms of the love of God, but in terms of construction of the human form. Yeah. Um, but I want to just talk about the reason and free will. It seems to me that the will is much, much, much more important than the reason because we'll never be damned for being wrong or making an error or believing a lie or anything like that. But we will be wrong, even if we believe the truth, if we believe it 
with bad will, with ill will, we can be in danger of eternal damnation. So it seems to me that the will is more important than the reason. Is that fair to say? I wouldn't say that. I'd say they're equally important, I guess. I mean, to insist obstinately on believing X is a use of the will. You're choosing to do something. Of course, heresy, as you know, etymologically means choice. So I choose individually myself to go against what the church has taught. That's a heresy. So I'm using my will, but but what I'm using my will to do is to assert or affirm a belief, a truth, something that my intellect tells me. So the two, I think, work hand in hand. It's two sides of one coin. Okay. Yeah, we can't really separate them. No. Also, I'd want to make a distinction, I guess. But I'm not sure what you mean exactly by reason. In the Greek vocabulary, there's a distinction to be made between the word nous, which means something like intellect, and the word dianoia, uh, which means discursive reasoning or argumentation. So nous is um, the direct apprehension of a transcendent essence without having to argue, as it were, to it. And the anoia is a use of argumentation again, or discursive propositions to get to that truth. So if by reason one means the anoia, I would want to add intellect as also coming into play at this point. We're made in God's image insofar as we have not only the capacity for argumentation, but also the capacity faculty for direct apprehension of God experientially. Yeah, I think reason includes memory and intuition. I just heard a talk by someone, a Catholic, that was talking about memory, and they were saying a lot of interesting things about how essential memory is. And I seem to remember in the confessions that uh, St. Augustine talked about memory and how it allows us to string together a thought. That was in the context of time, like how we, how are we now and what is the past and the future and how do we string together thoughts. So memory, do you have anything to say about the faculty of memory in relation to religion? Well, just to, just to piggyback on what you just said, for Augusta, memoria is not just with reference to past. It's also, as you said, a way of stringing together, binding together in some way, past, present, and future. Um, the Greek equivalent is anamnesis. Anamnesis is the more common pronunciation of the term, which has to do literally with raising the mind up. So menesis, that part of the word is from the word for mind, and that has to do with uplifting. So, for example, in the liturgy, when one says, do this in anamnesis of me, it's not simply with reference to something that's past historically, though it is, in fact, past historically, that Christ pronounced the words of institution at the mystical supper, but it's also a reference to the transcendent or eternal reality, again, of the, uh, of the incarnation of Christ's uh, redemptive work on the cross and of his resurrection. I mean, all of these things are being remembered. It's interesting, actually, in the Orthodox liturgy and the anaphora, or the part of the service having to do that includes the words of institution, God is being thanked for creation, incarnation, redemptive work of Christ on the cross, and thanked for the second coming as if it had already occurred, because it has, you see? So yeah, the, both memoria and anamnesis spread much more broadly than our term in English memory. Mm. 
I have many things I want to talk about. What about Christian unity? I, it's very important to me that we become united in Christ. What kind of approach do you think would actually work to bring about unity among Christians? <laughs> That's the biggest question so far, and I've got no idea. Let's just stick with Catholic and Orthodox, right? We can leave the Protestants off to one side and certainly other religious traditions, I think, off to one side. From my point of view, at least, the primary obstacles to Orthodox Roman Catholic reunion and uh, intercommunion are doctrinal in character. And I distinguish the word, I guess, doctrinal from theological. In other words, there are theological positions, speculations, classical authors on both sides of the fence who formulate things in different ways. And I think probably a lot of that can be solved or resolved by dialogue. But there are certain dogmatic or doctrinal things that stand out that I think just are obstacles. I don't know how to overcome the obstacles. Uh, number one would be the Roman Catholic understanding of the Bishop of Rome's universal jurisdiction and infallibility. As you know, I'm sure you know this, the, uh, the orthodox ecclesiological model is far more conciliar than monarchical. And it's understood that bishops together in council have infallible authority to promulgate doctrine, but that no one of them and of course, classically, the problem for the Orthodox is that the Western bishop, the Bishop of Rome, as it were, went off on his own unilaterally making some statements. That ought not to be done. It needs to be patriarchs, bishops meeting in synod together, inspired by the spirit to promulgate doctrine. So that would be one question that would have to be in some way resolved. I know back in the 90s, there was a Melkite Catholic bishop Elias Zogby, who came up with a statement, a two-pronged profession of faith, which he thought could maybe help bridge the divide between Rome and the Antiochian Orthodox. The Melkites are kind of in the middle position. Their liturgy is entirely Orthodox, Antiochian, but they're in communion with Rome. He was trying to figure out a way to bring this together. Two points to his profession of faith. Number one, I believe everything that the Eastern Orthodox Church teaches. Number two, I'm in communion with the Bishop of Rome as the first among equals, according to the understanding of the Holy Fathers of the East prior to the schism. Well, that sounds pretty good from an Orthodox viewpoint. It's basically saying, Bishop of Rome, you've got total rights in the West. That's your domain, that's your diocese. But leave everybody else alone in the East. You can't tell them what to be doing about things. It didn't fly. It didn't fly either from the Antiochian point of view. And then um, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, pushed back against it as well and said, these kind of local efforts toward unity really can't go anywhere. There needs to be a far larger dialogue, et cetera, et cetera. So both sides push back against that. That would be number one issue for me, papal primacy, um, how to understand what it means when in 1870, in declaring the doctrine of papal infallibility, it was said that the Pope speaking ex cathedra 
has a right to promulgate doctrine, which is um, irreformable itself and without the consensus of the church. Well, the Orthodox go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. If without the consensus of the church, you mean the church is not a democracy and everybody shouldn't be voting on this, cool, that's fine, we believe that. If it means you shouldn't be talking to other bishops about this, we're going, no, this is not, this is not the way it was done in ancient times. That would be number one. Probably for me, the next doctrinal issue would be the whole question of purgatory. The Orthodox are on board with the notion of after-death sanctification, purification. But as I understand it, at least, purgatory in classic Roman Catholic doctrine is also connected to temporal punishment, which the Pope has a right to remit either in whole or in part. And the Orthodox go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. If we're talking about sanctification, why would you want to remit that? Why reduce the number of years and why call it a punishment? Why not just say that we're transforming the person more fully than he was transformed on this planet? So that would be an issue for the Orthodox to try to understand that one too. The Orthodox do not have any form of indulgences whatsoever? No. There was a brief time, I think maybe 16th or 17th century, when there was a kind of, um, from the Orthodox point of view, unfortunate Latin influence on some of the Eastern teachings, where there was a kind of maybe a brief practice of something like that. But no, the Orthodox renounce that entirely. They say, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense. It's for God to indulge. It's for God in his wisdom to say to this soul, you've been purified enough at this point, thank you. And now I can admit you to the full bliss of the uh, of the heavenly life. But no, not a not a human being on the planet. That, that, that doesn't make any sense to an Orthodox Christian. Can you pray for the holy souls in purification after death? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, we would say certainly that um, the prayers of the still living are very important for the departed soul, and especially liturgies in which they're commemorated. Absolutely, for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're helping them, but you're not determining, as it were, this is the length of time that you need or, or something like that. And then thirdly is the infamous filioque issue, the adding of the, and the son to the third article of the creed. And, you know, for me myself, I would say there are ways to parse that. I think maybe it's again, a kind of theological issue where you could say, okay, um, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the father and the son in the sense that the spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. But just to leave it as it is, and then especially to remember that historically, it was simply inserted by the West in the creed without consultation with the East. The East goes, you know, you just, you don't mess around with the creed that way. And I think even, you know, Pope now St. John Paul II recognized that and was willing to himself step back from the filioque as a kind of olive branch to the East. I can just tell you right now, unless the West were completely to extinguish the filioque from the creed, there'll be no, no unity. It's just too big of a historical problem. It's been around too long, too much acrimony, too much argumentation. Nobody's gonna go into union as long as that's there.
Yeah. What about ecumenism? What is ecumenism for the East? You tell me what you mean by the word and we'll go from there. Ecumenism is dialogue with those who are outside of the visible Holy Roman Catholic Church. But the church teaches that although there is no salvation possible outside of the Holy Roman Catholic Church, there are salvific elements of the church outside of the church. And the way that I like to think of this is Noah, when he was building his ark, he was wandering around inviting people in, spreading the message, and there were cults to Noah that, that sprung up. And it just so happens that only eight people got on the ark, but everyone was invited and ecumenism to me is that sort of message of Noah where people are exposed to these saving messages, like he's hang handing out flyers, like there's a flood coming, get on the ark. And uh, for me, that's ecumenism. Ecumenism is the saving elements of the one holy Roman Catholic church outside of which there's no salvation. There are elements of that church outside of the church, and they're working to bring people into the church. The Orthodox would would, would be in favor of that understanding and that use of ecumenism, of course, with a view to helping people see that the Orthodox Church is one true holy Catholic and apostolic church yeah. and helping the Catholics to recognize that. So witnessing to, in dialogue with, but not for the sake of reaching some sort of um, latitudinarian via media where you give up some stuff and I give up some stuff and we come to the middle. No Orthodox would agree about that. Yeah. What about the Jews? In my religion, all the Jews will be saved. And then the question becomes, who is a real Jew, right? God will not renounce his promise to the to Israel. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But um, it's taught in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that uh, this is not just some poetic fancy, that the Jews will all come in as a body. Can you just talk about the Jews generally? How are they seen in the East? Are they seen as enemies that crucified our Lord? Or are they seen as God's chosen people? Or how, how are the Jews seen? Number two, as God's chosen people. And the Orthodox construe the Orthodox Church as the continuation of Israel. In other words, the Orthodox would say, we're the Jews. We're, we're the continuation of the promise, in fact. And that, yeah, God will graft the Jews onto the saving well, even as the Gentiles have been grafted on, as it were, to the Jewish stock, the Jews will in turn benefit from the uh, the redemptive, salvific work of Christ among Gentiles and will be saved as well. The key chapters, I think, maybe you're thinking of, are actually Romans 9 through 11. And it begins, well, really in 8, I suppose, where you've got all that stuff about predestination and foreknowledge and God making doesn't God have a right to create pots that then smashes and all that kind of stuff? But by the time you get to Romans 11, Paul has resolved the issue he's been wrestling with for those last several chapters and says, God has consigned all men to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. In other words, the Jews are going to be brought back in as well. This actually opens the door to the whole question of universal salvation. So are the Jews going to be saved? Well, from a universalist standpoint, and you've got various saints in the Orthodox East who were universalists. The answer is, sure, the Jews will be saved, and the Hindus, and the Buddhists, and the Muslims, and the atheists, though it's going to take them a while to come around, and they may need a lot, a long post-mortem purification before they actually get the picture. The Jews are not ipso facto enemies of Christ any more than you and I are. 
we're enemies of Christ in our hearts when we sin and when we act consciously against what we know that he wants of us. But no, they're, they're not. It's interesting, you know, Christ on the cross asks, says to God, forgive them, they know not what they do. And you wonder what's the antecedent of them? Well, it had to have included, it seems to me, Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate, Judas, because all of them were acting in a kind of ignorance. They didn't really get it <laughs> and were therefore in need of forgiveness. Are you, do you have universalist leanings? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. More than leanings. I'm a universalist. Is it not condemned by your church? No, that's kind of a false understanding of things. People sometimes say the Fifth Ecumenical Council condemned it, but that's not really true. There's no dogmatic position of the Orthodox, frankly, of either the East or the West on the question of universalism, which is why one of your great theologians, Hans Urs von Balthasar, can write a book called Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved? Answer, yes. <laughs> I don't want anyone to go to hell, but my church teaches me that hell is real and that it is possible to go there. You, you agree with that much, right? Well, it's possible to go there. The question is whether hell is eternal, whether we can think of God as a truly loving being who is goodness itself, consigning someone to torment and misery for eternity based upon finite culpability and mistakes in this life. And that doesn't make any sense at all to me. That just seems to me nonsense. Do you believe in Satan and do you believe that he will be saved? There are angels who rebelled against God for um, reasons of nescience and ignorance and who will themselves in the final analysis be forgiven and saved. Yeah. So, yeah, I believe in the salvation of Satan and the demons. What percentage of Orthodox share your view? Is it the majority, would you say, or no? Well, no. But there's a, certainly an openness in the East that you don't find in the West. There's a strong minority position of Orthodox Christians, beginning again in the early patristic era with Gregory of Nyssa, Isaac of Nineveh, Maximus the Confessor, big name for us, all the way down to the 19th century, Sergei Bulgakov, 20th century, some Orthodox authors as well. Significant figures, in other words, among them canonized saints. But it's a minority viewpoint. Do you understand those who oppose universalism, why they're so determined to insist that hell is eternal and real? I think it's a misreading of scripture in part, and then theological positions that are indurated in them by ages of misunderstanding. So for example, you don't really find much, if anything, in the letters of Paul to suggest that there's some kind of eternal damnation. What you do find are a lot of passages that suggest universalism. In, in the Gospels, you find some language of Christ concerning eternal perdition, eternal fire, eternal punishment. But in each case, the adjective eternal is the Greek word ionios, coming from the word, the noun ion, which is our eon. And eon is an age an age that can be very lengthy in extent, but insofar as it's an age, it comes eventually to an end. So it's not endless perdition, fire, and punishment. It's perdition or fire or punishment lasting until the end of an age. 
Now, what that might mean, how long that might be is a different question, of course, but it's not eternal. There are other words that could have been used in the Greek, ideos, other words that could have been used, adjectives to describe the punishment. If in fact Christ had meant, it's always gonna be the case that you're tormented forever. And that's not what aeneas means in the Greek. Mm. Uh, I think without an eternal hell, there is no basis for morality in this short life because we can say, well, I'm going to get there anyway. I'm just going to take the long route. I'll see you there. See you in heaven later. Yeah, I guess it depends on whether your motivation to be a moral or an ethical being, a good being, is based upon fear of Papa or whether you recognize as I think everyone will eventually recognize, being good is good for me. It actually helps me flourish. It actually contributes to my own growing happiness, to be less and less selfish and more and more selfless, to be more and more open to others, to be far less ridden by the habits and the, the, the slavery of selfish indulgence. When I begin to recognize that, I see that morality is actually something that I'm going to I'm going to like, <laughs> and that's finally a better motive than fear. Fear actually is actually just another egoic thing. Actually, if you think about that, you know, I don't want to get crushed. I don't want to get tormented. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes to be tormented. It's still kind of an egoic thing an ego egotistical thing in its own funny way. So yeah, no, I don't, I don't think that's right. I think there may be people that are more easily, quickly motivated by the fear of punishment. I don't know. I mean, maybe there are. Actually, the early church fathers like Nyssa, Gregory of Nyssa, who taught a doctrine of universal salvation, were a little bit guarded about that. And when they would preach to the, the hoi polloi, to the masses, they would often talk about, you know, you need to be careful here. There's going to be post-mortem pain. And maybe that was an important, you know, way of motivating, incentivizing a certain group of people. I don't know. But... It just doesn't finally make any sense. I listened to your Anselm thing, but I also listened to one other piece you did about different religions and how they're all good and they all have mystical components and this sort of thing. Can you just talk about the essential goodness of religion, sincere and authentic religion? I'm not talking about Scientology or some other cult, but real religions. I had a philosopher on my show recently who is a philosopher of religion, and I asked him, what is religion? And he said, there's no definition, no one knows, we're scratching our heads, no one has any idea. I don't think that's true, but that was his answer. But I'll ask you, what's your answer? What do you think religion is? And what is that essential core of the different mainstream religions that you look to and uh, as a good thing? Well, let's play etymology here. Religio means to bind back. So religion connects us back to our source, connects us back to the absolute, connects us back to the transcendent and ultimate, however construed and however named, Tao, Brahman, Allah, God. And it provides us with a set of doctrines, but also a set of sacraments, uh, a set of ritual behaviors, contemplative practices, spiritual practices that assist us in regaining a relationship to that reality. Every religion that I've ever studied, every true religion, authentic religion, sees it as being a combination of God's, in Christian language, prevenient grace, God's revelation to man, 
but then also calling upon man to respond in some way. The Greek term for this is synergy or synergy. We are co-workers with God. One thinks of Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, comma, for God is at work within you. Every religion says that. The absolute is working in some way to bring man back into union with him, but man must cooperate with that and do something too. So, I mean, you know, the, there's the classic aphorism, apothem, that you find in the East, especially in Irenaeus, Athanasius, God became man that man might become God. Every religion says the same thing. You know, nirvana became samsara, that samsara might become nirvana. Atma becomes maya, that maya might become atma. The transcendent enters into the imminent in order that the imminent might regain its, its relationship to the transcendent. The up comes down, that the down might go up. <laughs> <laughs> they all say the same. All the true ones do, I mean. And for me, the evidence for the truth, the salvific efficacy of these other traditions I study, well, I guess it's twofold. I read their scriptures. I read the writings of their great masters and teachers. And I see all kinds of fascinating parallels that can't be historically explained. I mean, they just seem to be saying the same thing irrespective of contact between the cultures. But then secondly, um, the lives of the great saints in those traditions. You know, look at somebody like Mansur al-Halaj, great Sufi saint, who was uh, crucified by the exoteric Muslim authorities for saying an al-Haq, which in Arabic means I am Allah. Well, he discovered that deep, deep, deep self-unity between himself and God, and they flayed him and crucified him for it. But I mean, he was clearly a Christic kind of figure. I mean, had something been done like that to him, and if he was a Christian, you'd say, well, a great saint. Of course, he's a great saint. And egolessness, selflessness. I was on stage, oh, maybe 10 years ago now with the Dalai Lama. Never been that close to someone of that stature. And just to see this guy up close, I was a few feet away from him, had some dialogue with him through a translator, just childlike just totally uninhibited in front of a thousand people and CNN cameras and just, you know, cleaning his glasses and kind of looking around and just, there was just, there just didn't no ego there, just totally transparent. And I'm going, there's got to be something right about what this guy's been doing. You know, he can't just be, it's, he's not a nut. He's a good man. <laughs> so if by their fruits, you shall know them. Well, what the heck? I have to say there's something going on there. What about the New Age movement and Gnosticism? Those are two related ideas. Can you just talk about your impressions? Well, <laughs> what I, when I hear New Age, I think dawning of the age of Aquarius, and we've got a whole new dispensation here now, and the old religions are bankrupt, and we need to have something like Scientology or whatever it is. I think that's nonsense. Gnosticism, I mean, there's ancient sectarian Gnosticism in the early church, which taught that matter is bad and a bad God had created the world and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's silly. But you know, Irenaeus, second century major church father, writes a book called Against Heresies, the larger title of which is The Refutation and Overthrow of All Knowledge, All Gnosis, Falsely So-Called, implying that there is a true gnosis. 
a true Gnosticism, a true way of being a Gnostic. So Gnosis just means knowledge. It means someone who has, uh, by God's grace and his work, achieved a certain maturity and who longer, no longer simply believes in things, but has actually come experientially to know them and be transformed by them. That's good Gnosis. We should all be aiming toward that kind of Gnosticism. Hmm. What about the Baha'i faith? Have you heard about that? Yeah, don't know too much. Just know that they're a kind of, um, oh, how do you describe this exactly? They say that Baha'u'llah, they call him a prophet, his teaching has in a way surpassed and supplanted the older traditions, but they see themselves also, I think, as in some way incorporating the good of all those other traditions, kind of syncretistic in character, bits and pieces of things. Um, there, you know, the Baha'is are actually a Muslim heretical group. I mean, they came out of Islam and the traditional Muslims regard them as heretics. Hmm. Do you think that the more educated you become in any field, the more divided and separated you are from everyone else on the planet because you become specialized, you have your pet theories, and it differs more and more. The deeper you go, the more it differs from your friend, your best friend in high school, who took a slightly different path intellectually, and he's studying his thing deeper and deeper and deeper, and you're just growing apart. Do you think that education separates us? Because that's not what Plato said, but it seems to me to be the case. Well, yeah, so but Plato's... <laughs> Plato's understanding of education was radically different from what you get in the contemporary college or university context. He was educating the soul. And I don't know what people are doing now. They're trying to get out of college to get a good job and make money, I guess. That's the main thing these days. So perhaps pet theories divide the Plato's education. And remember, it's a Mayudic education designed to draw out. Educara means to lead out what is already in the soul and to expose it and how the person, you know, come to terms with it individually, experientially, not inserting information and data of some sort of recondite kind that can help you be a better hedge fund planner or, you know, IT manager or something like that. So those kinds of educations, the modern kind may divide, but Plato's was, I think, meant to unite and did for centuries. Yeah. So at the end, I don't know if you know, but at the end of my interviews, I ask my guests to give a, a little closing thought, just something pleasant, nice, a little message of hope for the listener. Uh, do you think you could say something to my listeners to uh, inspire hope in them? So far as I am concerned, there's only one real question, finally. Why is there anything other than God? And the answer and it's a hopeful answer, I think, is there isn't. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is ask.